Welcome to the eighth episode of the Penn TTM Academy podcast. I'm your co-host, Felipe Tran, and this is the Penn TTM Academy multidisciplinary initiative to improve quality of care following cardiac arrest. I'm joined today by uh, my chief and co-host and director of both uh, Penn TTM Academy and the Center for Resuscitation Science here at Penn, Dr. Benjamin Nabella. And today's topic is oxygenation therapy in post-arrest patients. Several studies examining the association between hyperoxia exposure after resuscitation from cardiac arrest in the clinical outcomes have reported a conflicted results in the past decade. So there was a study published in Circulation in 2018 by Dr. Brian Roberts and collaborators, including many of the usual suspects of post-arrest care, uh, Mike Donino, Alan Jones, uh, Dr. Benabella was there. And they aimed to test the hypothesis that early post-resuscitation hyperoxia is associated with poor neurological outcome. So this study is titled Association Between Hyperoxia early hyperoxia exposure after resuscitation from cardiac arrest in neurological disability is a prospective multi-center protocol-directed cohort study. So Ben, uh, tell us about the study. Thanks, Felipe. It's great to be back for this eighth episode of the TTM Academy podcast. And indeed, uh, you're right, oxygen delivery after cardiac arrest is a fascinating topic near and dear to my heart as to many others. And I think this really highlights an important point before we plunge into the paper at hand, which is post-cardiac arrest care involves targeted temperature management to be sure, but it also involves a number of other important elements, many of which are still of under active investigation and study, some of which we've discussed in earlier episodes of this podcast, including the role of cardiac angiography, coronary angiography, the role of other interventions, hemodynamic goals, uh, careful neuroprognostication. And the management of oxygen delivery is one of these aspects of the bundle of post-arrest care that I think often gets ignored or given less attention than others. And I think the reason for that is simple. We tend to believe that sick patients need oxygen as a general concept, and we tend to put oxygen management lower on our priority list for sick patients who have uh, many other priorities, hemodynamic, uh, access, imaging, uh, and we say, well, we'll worry about the oxygen later. So that's sort of the, the prelude to the paper at hand, which as you pointed out, is a paper published this last year in the journal Circulation. The lead author, Brian Roberts at Rowan University, Cooper University Hospital, and his mentor, Stephen Treziak. I was uh, honored to be part of this research team as well, as well as a number of other people that you mentioned at other institutions. This study had a very simple goal in a way. It was to ask the question of whether hyperoxia, too much oxygen in the arterial bloodstream, was associated with worse outcomes from cardiac arrest. Now, this is not the first time this question has been asked. There have been a number of other studies, including a key one from Steve Treziak's group published several years earlier in JAMA, that suggested that hyperoxia, that is an elevated arterial oxygen partial pressure, was associated with worse outcomes from cardiac arrest. Now, if that's true, that hyperoxia might be bad, then it readily suggests a therapeutic option, which is to titrate down or lower oxygen delivery. That paper in JAMA and others like it were retrospective and therefore really 
really not definitive and only hypothesis generating. A number of other studies that were done uh, in parallel did not seem to show a relationship between oxygen tension in arteries after cardiac arrest and outcome. So some papers suggested oxygen might be bad or too much oxygen might be bad. Others' papers suggested that it really didn't matter. And so we're left with this sort of murky set of lower quality retrospective papers. And the question still remains, how important is it that we manage oxygen delivery, that is to say FiO2, delivered to patients after cardiac arrest? And how important is it that we titrate down the oxygen to improve outcomes? So that's sort of the question. And the authors recognize that the problem here is the studies are retrospective. There are many confounders. Many of these studies did not tightly control the other aspects of care that probably are important as well, such as the TTM protocol and such. Also, in these prior studies, the timing of oxygen measurements, arterial oxygen measurements by ABG, were variable. It was mostly based on clinical uh, decision-making at the time. That is to say, when a treating doctor said, let's get an ABG, they got an ABG. And, and so they weren't timed carefully, and there were biases. People made a decision about the sickness of a patient to get an ABG. So basically, these were all difficult studies. And so these authors set out to do this prospectively, to do it carefully, with a carefully managed set of rules around how care was to be delivered and carefully timed ABG measurements to determine this. So that was sort of the, the fundamental goal with the central question of is early hyperoxia, that is within the first six hours following rest, associated with post-arrest outcomes. And before I turn it back to Felipe, who will go through a little bit on the methods and, and how the authors approach this problem, I think it's important to take a step back and give you some context. Why are we even asking this question? Why would oxygen even be thought to be bad following arrest? Well, as many of you know, ischemia is obviously bad, but reperfusion of tissues leads to a set of injuries, and in cardiac arrest we call that post-cardiac arrest syndrome, or PCAS, and the set of injuries involves inflammation, generation of free oxygen radicals, cytotoxic release of glutamate in the brain, brain swelling, a whole host of things. But it has generally been shown in the laboratory that oxygen is fuel to this inflammatory fire. That is, in laboratory settings, one of the mechanisms of injury is oxygen is the substrate for generation of free radicals. So it stands to reason that if you give too much oxygen during this injury phase, you may be adding fuel to the fire and worsening outcomes. At least that's the theory. So that's why we care about this question. That's why there's a rationale for why too much oxygen delivery following cardiac arrest might not be benign. It might actually be a bad thing. So this was a multi-center prospective study conducted between 2013 and 2017. They enrolled adult comatose patients with post-arrest. They only included uh, patients that were mechanically ventilated so they could have adequate control uh, of their oxygenation and patients that were receiving active TTM therapy. They avoided trauma, sepsis, and the hospitals that participated in this study all had standardized post-cardiac arrest protocols in place, including TTM as part of their protocol. They had controlled rewarming, they had a cath lab available 24-7, and they all had goal-directed hemodynamic support options as described in their protocols. They had access to continuous EEG and all avoided early withdrawal of therapy. The FiO2s and saturations were recorded every 15 minutes for a period of six hours. The ABGs were drawn um, at hour one and six, and possibly in between those timestamps. And they also evaluated outcome at various thresholds uh, to assess dose effect. 
The primary outcome was poor neurological outcome or death, uh, and they defined that as modified ranking scores above three at discharge. So now I think you have some appreciation that this was a prospective trial that had very carefully controlled parameters. And the goal here was to reduce a lot of the possible confounders on outcome, possible confounders on the way care was delivered, which is important to get a clean answer to the question, at least in theory. And so we enrolled 280 patients in the final cohort in this multicenter fashion. And it was a fairly typical cardiac arrest population. So the mean age was 59. About a third of them had VF or VT as a shockable rhythm of arrest. So these are sort of typical variables that you might expect. And if you look in table one of the paper, I'm not going to go through all of it, you'll see that this the demographics match what many of you as providers see as a post-cardiac arrest uh, cohort after out-of-hospital and in-hospital arrest. And it should be noted that this cohort included both out-of-hospital and in-hospital arrest patients. Now, a couple of key things to point out as the general results. 38% of patients in this cohort had hyperoxia, and hyperoxia was defined as a PaO2 of greater than 300 millimeters of mercury. So that's pretty high PaO2. 38% of patients had hyperoxia exposure during the first 12 hours of care. So that's a lot of patients getting a lot of extra oxygen. And those of you who have cared for these patients in the ED and ICU, you could imagine how this would happen. A patient is intubated, they're put on an FiO2 of 1.0, and then it's sort of just left that way. Or maybe they're titrated slowly to 0.8, but they're not really brought down over the first 6 to 12 hours because there's a lot else going on for these patients. Now, typical of post-arrest cohorts, 55% uh, had in-hospital mortality, so 45% survived to discharge. That's not atypical for United States post-arrest care cohorts, so high mortality. And 70% of patients had either death in hospital or a poor outcome. That is to say, 70% had the primary outcome of an MRS, modified Rankin scale greater than three. So these are sick patients for whom post-arrest injury is going to be significant. Only 30% of patients left the hospital with a reasonable neurologic status, which again is fairly typical um, at these large urban academic centers uh, treating post-arrest patients. Now, a couple of really important key findings. First, there was a very poor correlation in our data between oxygen saturation and PO2. Now, this is not too surprising. We all know that there's not a linear relationship to the hemoglobin dissociation curve, but PO2 and oxygen sats did not correlate well. And in fact, it also did not correlate well um, with FiO2, or rather I should say, FiO2 did not predict arterial hyperoxia in all cases. So we had some patients who had arterial hyperoxia even at FiO2s, delivered oxygen of 40%, or 0.4 if you prefer the fraction. What does that mean clinically? That means you're not necessarily out of the woods just because you've been titrating down FiO2. Some patients are still hyperoxic. If someone's lungs are fully intact and they have no respiratory compromise, they don't need very much oxygen. Remember, we're all on 0.21 FiO2 um, as we deliver this podcast today. Now, there are only two things that clearly correlate with hyperoxia, and that was FiO2 and PEEP statistically. That is to say, the higher the PEEP, the higher FiO2, they were just more likely to have hyperoxia. So although the converse isn't always true, lower FiO2s sometimes still had hyperoxia, high FiO2s, if you leave a patient on 1.0 FiO2 or 0.8 FiO2, they're more likely than not to have significant hyperoxia. 
Now, does this matter? And this is where you might turn to table three in the paper if you're following along with the actual manuscript. In table three, we did a careful multivariable adjusted analysis. And I'll summarize briefly by just saying that hyperoxia was associated with worse outcome, both worse survival and worse neurologic status at survival, at discharge, despite adjusting for a variety of variables that might be considered to be confounders. And we looked at this a few different ways. We tried a few different techniques of adjustment, but pretty much found the same thing, that there was a significant association between hyperoxia and injury. Now, what's also interesting is when you look at figure three, this is perhaps my favorite figure in our paper, it sure looks like there was a dose effect. So we picked a number of thresholds of, of um, PaO2, that is to say hyperoxia, you know, 150, 200, 250, 300. And it looks like at around 250 to 300 is where we start to see harm. So if you're a little hyperoxic, it probably doesn't matter too much. But if you're significantly hyperoxic, it matters. And it seems to go up. So it, it, there seems to be a dose effect. It's moderately injurious at 250. There's more injury at 300 and even more as you go higher. Now, this also may explain why some of the prior retrospective studies didn't see an effect. If the PO2 is not higher than 250 or 300, you might even argue, you may not see an effect. So mild hyperoxia is not going to show a large effect size in a relatively small sample, in a relatively small cohort. But table three, uh, figure three rather, in my mind, really, I think, is a compelling story to suggest that too much oxygen is bad, and it may be so in a dose effect with a threshold of a PO2 around 250 to 300. What does that mean clinically for those of you clinicians out there? If you get an ABG and the patient's PO2 is over 200 or over 250, you really need to come down in the FiO2 and you probably should do it fairly promptly. The patient does not need that extra oxygen. They don't need a PO2 of 250 and it may in fact be injurious. It's also important to note in figure three, another reason why some of the retrospective studies may have been confusing. There are very broad confidence intervals. So we really needed a large cohort to see this effect. What does that mean? That means there's a lot of confounders. Post-rest care and post-rest patients are messy. There's a lot of things going on. And if you have a small cohort, you're likely to see something or not see something. There's just too much variability, too much noise in the signal. Now, what are some of the key points? First off, of course, the basic conclusion, significant hyperoxia in our hands, in our multicenter cohort, was associated with worse outcomes. And to review, the reason why we care about this is we don't want to add fuel to the fire and worsen injury. The whole goal is to mitigate brain injury, reduce brain swelling, and improve neurologic status at discharge. And by titrating oxygen safely, we may achieve this. And so it's important to note that other studies have attempted to look at titration of oxygen in a very preliminary fashion. There's one study that randomized patients to FiO2 of 1.0 versus 0.3 and found it was safe. So there's some safety data to suggest we could titrate oxygen fairly rapidly. However, another recent study gave some pause here. Uh, there was a study out of Australia of pre-hospital randomization to rapid O2 titration versus standard of care in post-arrest patients. That is to say, when the paramedics got people back from cardiac arrest, they either rapidly titrated down oxygen or they left them at FiO2 of 1.0. But the study was stopped early because a number of patients had hypoxic episodes. So this isn't so easy. And we have to think carefully about how we might titrate this. And in my mind, that pre-hospital study mostly is a cautionary tale for pre-hospital research. 
that pre-hospital studies of post-rest care are hard. Um, in the pre-hospital environment, there are a lot of poorly understood variables. There's a lot of things we can't control. And, and maybe we have enough time to get them to the hospital. Maybe this is better done in the controlled environment, or at least somewhat more controlled environment of the emergency department, where we understand the patients a little bit better, we can time things a little bit better, and, and we have more tools at our disposal. So for those of you who want the clinical bottom line, I think it's this. The American Heart Association and ILCOR guidelines recommend titration of FiO2 to a SAT that is acceptable in a reasonably rapid time frame. That is to say, over hours following cardiac arrest. They don't specify how many hours. There's some debate about what the safe saturation is. But, but I can tell you, at a, as a simple measure, if an hour after ROSC, a patient's SAT is 98%, their chest x-ray is normal, they're intubated, do not leave them on FO2 of 1.0. Come down to 0.8, come down to 0.6, titrate down. And you really want to titrate down, if you believe our data in the circulation paper, over sort of a 6 to 12 hour time frame. Six hour hyperoxia in our hands was associated with worse outcomes. So it would be reasonable if it's safe and possible in your patient, if their lungs exam is normal, if they're not full of fluid, if their SATs are fine, to try to get the FIO2 down to maybe 0.4 by six hours. That would be an excellent goal. Of course, that won't be achievable in all patients may not be achievable at all if there's early ARDS or aspiration or other problems. But suffice it to say that we should not be complacent about oxygen delivery. Now, this message, perhaps I'm saying a little strong. There are no randomized trials to date showing uh, this to be true. There are, our paper in circulation is probably the biggest and best controlled thus far. So we really do need randomized trials in this space. They're not going to be easy to do, and there's an editorial that accompanies this circulation 2018 paper that highlights the fact that these are difficult studies. They're, they're difficult from an ethics perspective regarding consent or waiver of consent. They're difficult to know what the safest titration protocols should be. Nonetheless, we need some brave investigators to start plunging ahead and looking into this issue. And I applaud friends of ours in Australia who are actually doing this. No, they are choosing a pre-hospital approach. And I do have some concerns that the pre-hospital environment may be a murky one to get clear results. So I think multiple trials will be required, some based in the ED, perhaps some in the ICU. But I think the fundamental point here is that we need to think of oxygen delivery as a therapy and oxygen as a drug. Sometimes that drug is helpful, sometimes that drug is harmful. There's therapeutic windows. Gone, I think, are the days where we can think of oxygen as just a benign bystander to care for critically ill patients. So Felipe, that's sort of my summary. Maybe you want to close us out. Well, thank you very much, Ben. So I think this is a good time to wrap this up. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at PennTTM, and you can find us on the website at PennTTM.com. We'll see you the next one. <laughs>